Hello, all you reinventors out there. I have somebody really unique for you today. I love Judy Katz. She had sent me a note. We don't know each other, but she sent me a note about something she's doing called Celeb Celebrity. S C E L E B R capital E I G H T Y because that's her age and she is still going strong and she wants to not only be active and be out there and be part of the mix but she's a ghostwriter for books she has a great media site that's called Cats Creative Books and Media and she charges a lot to have books written and she's out there dating. She's been married three times. She said she's just a bundle of energy and she's in her 80s. And I want every single one of you who thinks that you're getting old at 40 or 50 or even 60 to listen how, to how Judy calls people like that, which would include me, amoebas, because we haven't even crawled out of our shells yet to become something. It's such a wonderful, positive, upbeat discussion that I hope you'll enjoy meeting Judy Katz. Welcome, Judy. So glad to have you on the podcast. I'm lovely to be here, Leslie. Thank you so much. So I want to hear a little bit about your history um, before we find out how you're out there fighting ageism, which I totally love, and um, <laughs> and your your whole... 80-something push, which I absolutely, totally love. So let's start with, you know, where did you grow up and what did you used to do and quickly get to what you're doing now? Sure. I grew up in uh, Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. Uh, I went to um, performing arts, I, high school performing arts, the same school. I um, wound up at UC Berkeley. And when I graduated, I came back, and it was 1964, <clears throat> before everything that we have today. And I had my own column for four years on the Daily Californian, so I was sure that I would get a column on, on the New York Times. So delusional, like a lot of young people might be. So I went to um, an agency, an employment agency, and with clutching my four years of columns, and she asked me one question, do you type? And of course I typed on an old Remington, but I was smart enough to say, no, I don't type. And I wound up as a photo researcher at a medical advertising agency where what that meant in those days was a file cabinet filled with headshots. And I was very ballsy, so the big guy, Harry Henderson, would go to the men's room, and I would stand outside and wait until he came out, wiping his hands, and I'd say, Harry, I can write, I can write, I can write. And after a couple of weeks of that, <clears throat> he said, God damn, Judy, here's an assignment. And it was just like a one-page thing to write. And I stayed up all night, and I came in with it the next morning and I handed it to him and then I couldn't breathe all day. And at the end of the day, he called me in five o'clock. People used to run out at five o'clock. Um, and, and he handed it to me and the lead was changed and there were, was blue pencil all over it. And I started crying and he said, what's the matter? Why are you crying? And I said, well, I thought I was a writer. And he said, you are. 
that's light editing. And that was the kindest thing anyone ever said to me, and I'll never forget Harry Henderson for that. He gave me an opportunity. So I did something that stood me in really good stead. I learned how to read medical jargon and turn it into popular prose. And so I've done books with doctors or all kinds of other professionals, and the jargon goes in one ear and out comes you know, something that most people can relate to. <clears throat> I wound up writing for two McGraw-Hill magazines. I wound up, it's a long story, and a lot of it is in my celebrity uh, blogs, but I wound up as the youngest PR director for Madison Square Garden, and that was just so much fun. Wow, what fun. Until I got tired of 10th Cousins asking me for range of playoff tickets, <laughs> I got tired of the circus every year, but I did meet the original Knicks, and I had a lot of fun, and I really learned about PR. And from there, I became PR director for the New York March of Dimes, director of special projects for the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. I had a few other uh, very interesting jobs, and all of it led me to start my own firm, uh, Cats Creative. And at one point, I had 14 people working for me. And I'll never forget, this is 15 years ago. I was 65 years old. I have a three-bedroom, three-bath. I'm blessed with a beautiful apartment that was sitting empty all day long. And there I am being, you know, I was just exhausted being everyone's Jewish mother. Everybody had a drama every day, and I wasn't writing anymore. I was just being a therapist to people. So I came home to my beautiful apartment, and I sat there, and I said, what else can I do? At an age when many people were retiring, I said, what else can I do that I'll be well paid for, and I can work from home and maybe be a solopreneur? And I thought of ghostwriting. And at that point, now there are a million ghostwriters, but it wasn't so prevalent then. And so because I was in the media, the AP put out a story, woman of a certain age transitions to ghostwriting, see your life as a book, a movie, and hundreds of people contacted me, which sounds like a great thing, but it was the worst thing that could have happened. Because even though the article said she does it as a business, People came to me on the phone, and they started telling me their stories, not all of which were interesting, but when I got to money, they were like, pay you? So they wanted me to win the lottery for them, put them on Oprah, make the book a bestseller, and then they would throw me a bone, you know, something. So I went to one of my PR clients, and I said, and she had a big Wall Street firm, and I said, you need a book. And she said, why? I said, because it's the ultimate marketing tool. It's a door opener. Made millions with that first book, not from selling so many copies, but because she was smart enough to know that what we had to do, which we did together, was write a powerful cover letter and then mail it to the CEOs of the uh, biotech companies that she wanted, you know, and other companies that she wanted to uh, engage with. And that's the first thing that I ask people. I can't deal with delusions, you know. I'm not responsible, I tell people, for how many books will sell. That's the universe at work. That's marketing. That's a lot of things, some of which are not in our control. But if you give me your wish list and you tell me what you want this book to do for you, it will happen. 
I wrote a Holocaust book that we're trying to get made into a movie. It's a big documentary now all over PBS called Angel of the Ghetto, One Man's Triumph Over Heartbreaking Tragedy, Sam Solos. And let me tell you, that didn't sell a lot of copies, but the people who got it were very important. And it's a very powerful Holocaust story, very unusual. So, you know, it really depends. I did another book with a financial advisor who's extraordinary, and it's called Who's Got Your Financial Back? Conquering All Challenges with the Right Advisor. And his name is Paul Reback. Who's Got Your Financial Back? Also, he made millions because it wasn't a matter of how many books he sold. It was a matter of sending it to the right people who would then entrust him with their portfolios. And that I makes would, a lot of I, sense. I get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and the other thing is I am probably more expensive than other people. I've had many people say to me, oh, you charge so much more than blah, blah, blah. And I never argue with people because I think everyone deserves to, you know, ask for what they think they're worth. So I simply say to people, well, a Timex tells time and a Rolex tells time. And I think whatever you do in life, you should always think that you are the Rolex. Love and that's that. How people will perceive you. Oh, I love that. I love that. Oh. <laughs> well, it works. Let me tell you. You know, I don't. I'm not apologetic for what I charge, and you know, I I want to help people be successful. So the other thing is, I'm kind of a one-stop shop because I was a publicist. I can market people's books, and I also can reach out to publishers. So I've gotten people agents, I've gotten people top publishing houses, and I put books through self-publishing. Some people, when they decide to do their memoir, Leslie, they want it yesterday. They're not gonna wait six months or a year. They want the book started now. <clears throat> so, you know, that means that they wanna get it out sooner. What's because the... if you go with a traditional publisher, it's gonna be a year to two years. Mm -hmm. What's the craziest ghostwriting job you had to turn away? You no, know, I have had to turn away people who came to me. Um, I don't want to go into too many details, but yeah, you don't have to I, give names. I just want the crazy exactly. story. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, there was a billionaire woman who came to me and we were doing a book on women who are the breadwinners in their families. And she told me hilarious stories about her husband who did not work. And one of the stories, to give you an example, was she came home 10 o'clock at night. Her driver uh, brought her to her penthouse apartment. She had a full briefcase to work further at night. She went upstairs in the private elevator. She rang the doorbell. Her husband didn't answer. He was home. So she had to take out her key. She got into the house. The door to the um, theater room, the media room, was closed. She opened the door, and there was her husband watching a sports game, 10 o'clock at night, and he looked up at her, and he said, Oh, you're home. What's for dinner? Wow, that's awesome. So... So halfway through, and she was paying me well, halfway through, she came in and said, Judy, we have to stop the book. I'm not going to be able to do it. 
And I said, why? So good. She said, I know it's good. But I just told my husband I was writing the book, and he said, it's the book or me. He said that the girls, their their children, will know that you are the breadwinner. Well, of course they know. But the point is, <clears throat> she was in her middle 50s. She didn't want to be divorced. Saw what some of her other wealthy friends were going right, through. Right. And she is with him to this day. Wow. So that was one of several, you know. But essentially, I turn away people who come to me and say, I want you to write a bestseller. Oh, okay. No matter what my life is or how boring, I want you to make it a bestseller. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Very good. <laughs> yeah. One woman came to me early in the early days, called me up and said, well, I have such a story. Really? What is it? Well, all four of my husbands abused me. Wow. So I said, oh, really? So what did you learn from that? Learn? Okay, so husband number five, he's all set. <laughs> oh, my You know goodness. what I'm saying? Yeah, no. yeah, there was no life lessons there. Yeah, yeah. You know, if it's one thing if things happen to you, and, you know, that story alone wouldn't be interesting. But, right. you know, if you still have no life lessons, it's just things that have happened to you. And right. nobody wants to read that. Right. Absolutely. So let's talk about what you're doing for celeb cel celebrity celebrity e l e b r and then big e i g h t y. How do I pronounce it? Say it again. Celebrity. 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 I just yeah. had somebody I tell me about sexties. <laughs> so oh, we have the cute. sexties, and now we have the celebrities. And we have to figure out what the 70s are. I'll leave that to you. But go ahead. What's happening with Celebrity? My 99-year-old boyfriend, I've had three husbands. They're all gone now. But uh, my 99-year-old, my, my boyfriend, Jerry, was 98, seven weeks shy of his 99th birthday when he died at his villa in Casa de Campo. And it was a whirlwind romance. But the point is, this beautiful man, uh, which I've written about, and there's stories out there about this incredible relationship, uh, was as sharp as you and I. Let's put it that well. I hope I'm sharp. I, uh, I would say that the perceptions of people in their 80s and 90s and later is all wrong. And it is true that there are people in their later years, but also in their 50s and 60s and 70s, who are like little crab apples. They're missing teeth, they're missing life, they're not living wholly, and that's not a matter of age necessarily. I mean, we lose some, some things, but we gain so much. Would I want to go back and have my beauty again if I had to lose the insights that I got into life? No, I would not. You know, so I feel like there are a lot of perceptions, and this is what I write about in my blog, Celebrating, uh, misconceptions, because there are people now, and we all know Betty White, we just lost her, was just a couple of, two or three weeks shy of her 100th birthday, and still working. Mel Brooks, 95. I mean, James Earl Jones, 95. So many people. Um, in fact, the uh, blog that I wrote, that went live a few minutes ago is all about 
that we can, you know, those people and how we can live be past 100 if we want to. And so I want to I want to try to correct some of the misconceptions that people in their 80s and beyond have lost uh, mental acuity. Some do, most don't. And, you know, I think in a way, it's kind of a choice. A wow, choice talk about I, that. If you, you think it's a choice, yeah? I do, because I think that when you wake up in the morning, you have some choices to make. You can, you know, give in to aches and pains. You can give in to overeating. You can give in to just sitting around or you can do something creative, do something wonderful, do something for other people, which really makes you feel good. There's just so much you can contribute up to the last breath. So I do think that being engaged in life, keeping yourself sharp, still reading good books, engaging in conversations, being out there in some fill, even a small philanthropic way, I'm, I'm very into um well, I'm a dog crazy person. <clears throat> I have two dogs and a cat. I love animals. I've met a lot of very interesting people through animals. You know, there's just so many ways that you can be engaged in life, and it doesn't have to be, <clears throat> you know, you don't have to be famous or a celebrity or rich or any of those things. But you can also, you know, um, you can also start a new business if you want to. and um, you know, I have some tips on that if you Ooh. ever want it. Yes, I do. I do. I do. I want tips on that because our readers are, you know, 40, 50 plus, and they're trying to figure out what's coming next for them. And it's lovely to hear that it can go on for a very long time. So, you a know, very long time. I call my 40 and 50 year old friends amoebas. I tell them, you're just crawling out of the mud. You just, you're just waking up to life. And they laugh and they like to feel like little amoebas, you know what I mean? Like, like not yet fully formed because then they feel they have like a whole second act and a third act ahead of them. Right. So give us your tips for, so would that be a third act, do you think? Yes, I think that it's a third act. And I think that the first thing I would advise people, and by the way, anybody who thinks they might have a book in them and it could do something for them are free to call me. Um, ask yourself, what do you do enjoying where you can honestly say that you're the Rolex, not the Timex? Because you always have to feel you have something unique that you can offer. So then I would say that if you're thinking of transitioning, ask yourself and be realistic about it. Can you financially give up everything else or do you need to start slowly and not give up your day job, which, you know, is, is always good. I didn't end my PR firm the minute I decided to be a ghostwriter. It wasn't too far long, but I had to keep paying my bills, you know, till the first couple of big books came in. And then thirdly, at the start, you know, if you're going to do something new, start with the thinking of ways to market yourself because you want to give yourself a head start to begin to build a reputation. I have people come to me and they say they've already written a book and they've already self-published it on Amazon. 
and nobody's buying their book, and they're crying, Judy. I spent two, three, four years writing this book. I put it on Amazon with a great cover. I got blurbs. Nobody's buying my book. And I say, what did you do to... And they say, market. And I say, if you had a retail store, would you spend a lot of money on decorating, renovation, whatever, and not advertise, not tell anybody about it, but just on opening day pray that people come in? Well, it's the same thing. So business, writing a book is a work of great love and creative energy and hope. But hope is not a strategy for business. The other half of it is to figure out who your audiences are and how you can reach them. Because the reality of business and maybe of life is what's in it for me. F-I-M-E-M-E. What's in it for me? Meaning people want to know what benefit they're going to get from reading your book, from knowing you, from following you, from something. And so you always have to think of what's in it for the other person, not necessarily for you. Riches will accue to you in so many ways if you think that way. So funny that people wouldn't think that way. I guess if you, I mean, you know, I was not in marketing, but I was an editor-in-chief and that was the whole key to making magazines sell was what's in it for them. If you weren't giving them something they needed, why would they spend the money, right? Or if you weren't answering uh, a problem or a question or solving solving an issue, you have to be of help. That's the whole point, right? No? (laughs) You and I know this. The thing is, though, that when people sit down to write a memoir, they are so close to their own story, so close to their own life, that Not all, but many of them are focused on telling their story, and they're so sure it's going to be of interest to the world. They can just see the movie. They're ready. Netflix, movie theaters, when they open again. Right, right. My story is so unique. And, you know, that's that's a very short-sighted way to look at it. There are stories, but, you know, that are worthy of that, obviously. But you also need to know that there are professionals who know how to reach out to movie or streaming video people. And, you know, uh, marketing costs money. That's another thing. You have to be aware that it's not going to be free. Just because you put your book on Amazon doesn't mean eyeballs are going to see it. And I think, you know, it's like anything else where people are a virgin, so to speak, in an industry. People just don't know the book industry. And that's where I have to be like Harry Henderson, kind to people. He was very kind to me. And I have to be kind to people knowing that they are not aware of some of the aspects of what they need to do to make their book, you know, popular. Right. And what kind of things are you talking about today? Because we do have a lot of writers and people who are creating books or want to create a book who listen to this podcast. So what are those things that, is it beyond social media? Is it 
what are your what are your top two go tos today? When you say go tos, well, I mean, one of the things I always tell people to do is study other successes, see how other people market their books, see what kinds of podcasts. Thank you very much. What kinds of media interviews, what kinds of blogs I might put out, you know, see what other people are doing to um, call attention to themselves. You know, one of the things that I do is I give talks to groups of women about um, how to meet men the right way, for one thing because I was very successful on dating apps. Because I understand what it is men really want and need, which is permission and affirmation to feel good about themselves. If, wow. if, you, hold, if you hold up a mirror to a man, make him feel really good about himself, he won't care your age, you've got a few extra pounds, whatever, he'll follow you anywhere <laughs> because you make him feel good about himself. Oh well, I mean, goodness. that's why men can walk around with a you know big stomach and whatever and, and think that they're God's gift to women. And oh. we worry about every single little wrinkle or pound or whatever, you know. Right. So you just have to know what you're dealing with, the nature of the creature. And, uh, you know, I so I put myself out there in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I, I'm always looking for more interesting stories to tell. And then the other thing is, if you're going to write a book, go on Amazon, go on Google, see who else has written anything like it and how you can make yours different. You know, do your due diligence. It's astonishing that many people don't do that. I've had people come to me with a title for a book that's on Amazon 10 times. Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. So how do you know when you should hire a ghost writer? I mean, is it just if you're not a writer at all in any way? or And what's the general fee structure for something like that? Where does that sure, start? Sure, 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 sure. Uh, you should hire a ghost writer, even if you are a decent writer or even a good writer, but you're too busy with other things. If you're making money as an attorney uh, or a doctor or a scientist or a college professor, um, all of whom have hired me at various times, if, if you are a good writer but you don't have the time or you do know that you're too close to your story, because somebody else who's good at that, you know, can, can make the flow correct. There's a way to write, be it a memoir, business book, whatever. It's almost like fiction, a memoir. You have to yeah. start out with some it's dramatic story arch. Yeah. Right, the story arch and yeah. pull people in yeah. right away so they can't put the book down. Right. Yeah. Very hard to do yourself sometimes and to see what that arc is in your own life. When you're, you can see it for everybody else, but hard to see yourself. Yeah, I charge $100,000 for a book. Wow. I charge $35,000 35, for a bikini. I, I trademarked B-O-O-K-I-N-I, -I, bikini. That's bikini. like 60 to 100 pages, and it's just as good. I mean, you can, you know, it goes on Amazon. 
beautiful, you know, a beautiful cover, beautiful everything. And it's, you know, Mark Twain once wrote to a friend, if I had more time, I would have written you a shorter letter. It, it <laughs> takes a lot to say things as synced way, you, you know. So anyway, True. yeah, True. that's that's what I do. And a typical book takes a year. Wow. Uh, and I, the way I work is I do interviews with people. Meaning, you know, oh, I try to meet people in person uh, when I can and or Zoom. <clears throat> I've had people all over the world, China, other countries, other states. So we get on um, a conference call and I tape them and I use that to um, write the chapters. And they, you know, get a writer for hire agreement that spells out the payment schedule and the time frame and all that kind of stuff. It's all done very professionally. And, uh, you know, Knockwood, so far, everyone's been quite happy with their results. But, again, these are people who are learning what is involved with the process, and I have to say that they've all gotten more than their money's worth. Awesome. What would you tell anybody who is listening, because we're pulling into the end here, if they want to do what you do, yeah. what are some tips and tricks that they should know if they want to get into this kind of ghostwriting business? Where are the openings? What do you see? What do you say? No, uh, I would say start with maybe writing uh, some articles for people. I wrote articles, speeches, you know, sometimes you start with some